This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Freestyle Friday is here. It's a beautiful day in New York City. It's like springtime here. I gotta say, I don't know what is going on, but I'm. You could walk around in a T-shirt and and jeans right now on the in the streets of New York, which is nice. I hopefully it's uh, lovely wherever you are. Uh some news bits we'll get into today. Also, of course, since it's a Freestyle Friday, we've just got some interesting folks who will be joining at different stages of the show in order to tell us about, well, you'll have to wait and see. All kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, but the, the most interesting, the most interesting uh, bits from the news cycle in the last 24 hours is what we'll, we'll start off the show with today. And you've got more on the Trump-Russia dossier. First off, uh, there's now all of this uh, crowing. People seem very excited, especially over at uh, CNN, my former employer. Uh, They seem very, and for those of you who are wondering, I I, I could have stayed. I I chose to. uh, How did did Gwyneth Paltrow and, and her husband, they consciously uncoupled? I consciously uncoupled with CNN, appreciate the opportunity, but I just I wanted to go pursue other things for a while. Uh, so I don't know. There's some reporting about other people at CNN that have been recently cut or let go. That happens at the end of every year. There are contributors that don't get re-signed. I was offered a re-signing, and I respectfully and politely and gratefully declined. So CNN, uh, they have a lot of... A lot of anchors who seem to be very excited that they were backed up in their initial reporting on the Trump dossier. You have Biden coming out saying that the intel agencies told them first before they told Trump, hey, we're going to tell the president-elect about this. And, of course, Biden says that Obama, Obama said that this doesn't have anything to do with anything. I don't understand why we would believe or I, I don't <laughs> I don't see why we would believe oh yeah something that's really damaging to Trump I'm sure Obama and Biden were like I get this away from me it's so dirty I don't, I don't want to touch it I find that hard to believe uh, this is what Biden said in this, this is according to the AP in an interview that he just gave uh, he said that I think it's something that obviously the the agency thinks they have to track down it surprised me that it made it to the point where the agency, the FBI, thought they had to pursue it. What, this is there are a few questions that are still out there for me, and I, I would like to get answers. I don't think I will, but the questions themselves are important to state 
at this point. Why was this something that made its way all the way into a presidential briefing, which also has now been confirmed by the vice president, which is strange. They shouldn't be talking about what is being told to the president-elect in closed-door classified settings. This is, I don't know if they're calling it the PDB, or but this is a PDB-level interaction with the intelligence community. you got DNI, uh, an entire office just created as the focal point for intelligence from the 17 now agencies, because now they count the DNI as its own agency. He's talking to the president-elect, and the vice president is telling the press what was contained in that briefing in terms of subject matter, not in terms of classified information specifically. But that's not appropriate. So why is there's a lot of whys here, and I wanted to state them because the narrative the media is running with is we were most of the media. BuzzFeed has got egg on its face. BuzzFeed is going to have to do a lot of cat videos to get people to forget about this. But the rest of the media is saying that that was covering the stories. They're claiming that they were correct. They're real news. The fake news charge was wrong and hurtful. It's very hurtful. And everything is fine. And they're going to continue to hold. Uh, hold Trump team accountable, and they're going to do everything that they can in order to make sure that they speak truth to power, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some un unanswered questions that I have for the intel agencies as well as for the media that is reporting on this information. Uh, first of all, why would unsubstantiated rumors that now the current head of MI6 is blasting this guy, this former uh, this former British intelligence agent for taking this on and, and being, a, being a clown, essentially, uh, being involved in this process at all. Uh, MI6 bosses are furious with this guy, Steele, who is talking about this. I think that's his name, right? Where does it go? Yeah, Steele, who some people are claiming is like James Bond. First of all, anybody who ever... Everyone who works in intelligence and makes any reference to themselves in any way as being similar to James Bond. And I remember seeing Valerie Plame's husband doing the same thing. I think he said on The Daily Show once, oh, she knows how to wield an AK-47. Please, son. Nonsense, okay? I don't know. He knows how to wield a computer and how to do spreads for Vanity Fair because she's so concerned about her cover being blown. What a joke. Uh, but Steele is... Somebody that now, if you look at the Daily Mail, is being compared to by some of his friends to James Bond, which is always nonsense. Um, there's the gulf between what you see in a J any James Bond movie and what an intelligence officer actually does is so enormous as to be almost completely unrelated. They're unrelated to each other. So that's already a huge red flag that this guy is is a borderline fantasist. So. Uh, that's a problem. But for the intel communities, or the intel community, I should say, the various agencies, to get this information into this briefing, why? What did they think that this was going to do? And I know that people are saying, oh, well, Buck, maybe they believed some of it. Why not then just include the parts of it that they could verify and pull out the parts that they couldn't? Why just present the whole mishmash to the president-elect in any form? Or give a summary of it, as they say. What's the point of that? 
you'd have to you have to wonder why would they do that? Why would they give the president a summary of information that has already been some of it disproven? And yeah, people are saying that the rest of it rings true with regard to how Russia conducts these kinds of compromise operations, but that doesn't mean that they compromise Trump. So the judgment here to me seems to be way off. They present this information, which do, which has been out there, and everyone's saying it was in D.C. for months. The Clinton campaign didn't touch it. Keep that in mind. The Clinton campaign that I believe directly coordinated with, what was it, NBC or whomever it was that released the video of Trump or the audio of Trump with Billy Bush, uh, that was... I, I can promise you that there were contacts there, there was coordination there that nobody wants to admit or talk about and we'll never find out about. But the Clinton team didn't touch this stuff. And we know they'll play as dirty as dirty can be. But it would have backfired on them. So the intelligence community is sharing with Trump something that the Clinton team and the New York Times and many other news organizations thought was too flimsy to even write about or mention publicly. I used to write for the PDB. I ran the intelligence community's briefing for the president and principals on more than, well, more than one occasion because it sound like I'm inflating. I did it twice. I'm not sure if anybody younger had done it at that point in time, but I did run that briefing. So I, I have some idea what I'm talking about here. I, I love the people on Twitter who are like, maybe you should learn what an intelligence briefing is. Hmm. Maybe I did. <laughs> I, love the, I love the random social media advice I get on, you know, maybe you should learn something about how the intelligence community operates, jerk. Yeah, I'll work on that. So I know what's included in the president's intel folder. I used to write for it. It was a primary part of my job, and I had actually went through the process of presenting it on two separate occasions uh, myself, the entirety of the book, or I'm sorry, the main thrust of the book, the deep dive is what we used to call it, not the entirety of it. Um, but I also knew what would go into the book on a regular basis, or the book, the PDB, the President's Daily Briefing. So you have many news outlets, no information, won't print it, won't talk about it, know that it's junk, but the intel community is going to share it with the president-elect I know people get it, and then they always get you on the they get you on the details. If you say anything that's not a hundred percent technically true, even if it's true in in general, oh well, Buck, they didn't they didn't give him the thirty five page. Why are they giving him a summary even then of the thirty five page? What's the point? He doesn't need the intel community to tell him this stuff is out there. And if you're Donald Trump and you think all this stuff is crap and totally untrue, what do you think of your intel community saying there are these rumors out there? Do you think that the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, do you think any of these agencies were writing reports on theories that President Obama wasn't born in Hawaii, wasn't a U.S. citizen? Do you think they presented him with that? Which by the way, would have invalidated his presidency, of course, right? So that, you could say, is a very clear national security concern. But no, of course not. Of course not. That would never happen. That would have been wildly insulting. They weren't going to do that. But they're going to present Trump with this. And now we get into the why. And keep in mind, these are savvy, sneaky people that are involved in all of this, particularly on the media side, but also on the intelligence community side. Think of the intelligence community as a bunch of classified journalists, and you'll be right most of the time. 
when you're talking about the analysts and those who present the information. There's a lot of different kinds of jobs. But when you're looking at analysis from the intel community, journalists working in the classified realm, that's what they are. So they tend to be left of center, as I've told you before. And there is a ethos among them, uh, the sneakiness. So a lot of the time, not all the time, a lot of the time. So they present this information that doesn't make any sense. And then somehow word of the information being presented gets to a whole bunch of media outlets who spread the story that, well, Trump was briefed on this. And then within 24, and then a fight breaks out over, well, how would you know that? And that's unsure. And why are you giving, why are you bringing this up? And why is that a news story? And then Vice President Biden comes out and says, oh, yeah, no, we were told about this. And we were told that it was going to be briefed to Trump. So clearly it was. So they're verifying that news. They're verifying that leak to the news. That's what Vice President Biden is doing here. Now, what purpose does any of this serve? This is why I know I've been spending some time with you on this now, and you've been hearing about it all week, but think this through with me. What purpose does it serve? To report that there's a summary of unverified reports included in a classified setting briefing for the president-elect of the United States. Of course what that does is create the perception without officially owning it or stating it or getting into the details that there's something to the Russia dossier because the intel community decided to include it in a briefing with what they thought was other really important stuff. And the person or persons who leaked that it was included by the intel community to the media knew that. And the media knew that the 35 pages, which couldn't be verified, otherwise they would have run with the story all summer, every day, day in and day out, knew that it's actually better to just say that it was included because then it leaves it open to interpretation for anybody out there who wants to cling to, well, some of it is true, most of it is true, who knows how much of it is true, but the intel community gave it to Trump. So there must be something there and now we have dni clapper with these sort of vague statements of well we just we include lots of stuff for the president they chose this one if you were donald trump right now which i know is this is a weird thought experiment this is how you would see all of it you're having your first meetings with people who are about to become your employees they work for the executive branch and he is the chief executive of the executive branch and someone either from the intel community side or the white house or the senate is passing along information from what are supposed to be private classified closed-door briefings to the media that allows them to inflate a story that should be a non-story while claiming to be sticking to journalistic principles, wouldn't you feel like there was some sort of conspiracy happening here? Just because there are conspiracy theorists everywhere doesn't mean there's no such thing as a conspiracy. This is what they don't want the public to figure out. Reporting on the summary of the 35 pages of crap info is a means of insinuating without actually saying that there must be something to those 35 pages. 
And now you have to also ask the question, the intel community taking those 35 pages and summarizing them and presenting them to Trump, were they doing him a favor or were they setting him up? Because this information should never have been included in that briefing. Who cares? Bam. We just did it, team. We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton here. We have phone lines open 888 3393. Patrick in Kansas. What's up? Hey, Buck. Great to talk to you again. I have a movie quote for you. It is I'm not into politics, I'm into survival. It's kind of an obscure one, so I'll give you I a mean, hint. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, we, we got to get a little bit more of the iconic quote going. I'm not into politics; yeah. I'm into survival. That's is, is this like an aside was, from somebody who's playing a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in some movie or something? Or what, what is it? I mean, it's like it sounds like it could be clear and present danger or something. But what is it? Right. To add context, um, he was going to be a contestant, and his name was. Ben, the butcher of Bakersfield, Richards. Um, Running man. Is this the Schwarzenegger movie where he's like in a big game show? I'm forgetting the name of it, but I know the movie. Running man. All right. Close enough. Fair enough. (laughs) Um, And what else do you got for me? I'm a huge fan. I listen to you as as much as I can. Well, you're uh, a scholar and a gentleman with fantastic taste. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I even go hunting with my dogs, uh, pheasant hunting. I listen on Bluetooth. So, but I I called in this last summer and I mentioned Yuri Bezmenov, and and I and I've heard you mention him a couple times here recently as well. And I just find it um, I don't I don't know insulting, and I, I think you just nailed. The uh, what's happening in the media, where they can dance around this thing and make insinuations. I listened on NPR yesterday, and they're telling us how Russian disinformation uh, works. And it's just, again, it's insulting. And if we really want to know how that works, we consult, again, Yuri Bezmenov's um, KGB defection in, what was that, the late 70s, early 80s? Mm-hmm. And and so when I called you this summer, I said I found society ill-equipped, and because even my you've got friends, one minute here, my friends. So we got to speed it up. 
they'll consider themselves more pious, more informed, more intelligent, and yet when it comes down to it, they're just more brainwashed. So I wanted to ask you, what do you believe is required in society to have this shift in philosophy? I think people like you and Crowder and you had Shapiro on, you guys are these young thoroughbreds. So I wanted to get your take on that. How do we turn this all around, basically? Wait, did we lose? Where did Patrick go? Oh, he's gone. Um, Patrick, I don't have time to answer that right now. Maybe I'll take on the flip side. Thank you for calling. Um, I What? Hello? All right, team, back in a few minutes. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Phone lines open, team. It's Freestyle Friday, so let's talk. 888-900-3393. It is Friday the 13th today. I don't know how many of you are superstitious. It's always funny to me. You can say you're not superstitious, and then you start to push somebody on things, and I feel like everyone is on a bit of a scale when it comes to superstition. Eventually, you'll get to a place where they would feel uh, like they're just they're uncomfortable. Um, you know, if I said to you, do you believe in in voodoo? Uh, may, a lot of you, I'm sure, would say no, even though act- actual voodoo people now. I think there's been a, an effort to rehabilitate the image, but it's uh, some practices of Christianity that were mixed with indigenous animist practices. And there's other aspects of it that come into play and who really knows voodoo now is is a uh, haiti which is the main place where voodoo comes from and is is well known uh they're saying that it's there's nothing sort of nefarious the black magic all that stuff is not necessarily true okay fine but if i told you that there was a voodoo doll or if i told you that you could go into a, a satanist church and w- would you desecrate all the maybe you would because it's a satanist church but i'm just saying you push people on these things if i told you that somebody was taking a voodoo doll of you and stabbing it would you at least have a moment of "Ooh, that's a little that's a little strange or if i said to you before they had rehabilitated it would you stay in the ruins of, of what was the harlem valley psychiatric center where they used to perform lobotomies and there was a prison for the mentally insane and it was left in total disarray those of you who spend any time in the area of new york city and drive up to uh, Dutchess County, you tend to pass it on uh, Route 22. Uh, you'll see this enormous complex there, and I would we would always I talk to my brothers and friends and other people that knew what I was talking about, and say, okay, you, nothing's going. Would you feel a little weird staying in the imba- in the abandoned asylum for the criminally insane overnight? It's been out of use for. 40 or 50 years now, just decay, windows all broken. You know, you start, it starts to creep you out. Look, there's a reason why. There's that back of the neck, hair goes up feeling that you get from different things. I don't find the number 13 to be particularly, and I, of course now, as I'm saying this to you, 
I'm like, am I going to leave my apartment today? Am I really going to wander around the streets of New York? I should probably stop talking about this, you know, jinxing myself or something. I just bring it up because of the historical origins. I, I find this to be an interesting, uh, an, an interesting discussion. I'm always looking for reasons to talk about history. Of course, there's the Friday the 13th movies, which I have seen parts of, but do not strike me as timeless classics. Then again, I'm not a horror movie guy. So maybe some of you have different thoughts on whether the... I think they made eight of them. There's a lot of Friday the 13th movies. But why is it considered unlucky? There's a word for it. Psychologists have a word for fear of Friday the 13th. It is periscavetacatriophobia. Periscavetacatriophobia. That is fear of Friday the 13th. And yes, try to say that 10 times real fast. Uh, Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky day, and there are a whole bunch of different theories about this. And some of you, I appreciate the Facebook messages about this. It is not, uh, there's not a universally accepted explanation for it. I'll give you some of the most common ones. The There are supposed to be biblical origins to this. Uh, some historians have said that the day on which Eve bit or uh, took a bite of the apple from the tree of knowledge is tied to it. Uh, in the New Testament, there were 13 people present for, for the Last Supper, and Judas is considered the 13th to show up for that very fateful dinner right before Christ's crucifixion on Good Friday. So Christ was crucified on a Friday. You also have that to add into it. Uh, on This is a very popular one when people are looking for the explanation on Friday the 13th, 1307, Philip IV of France arrested hundreds of the Knights Templar. He wanted their wealth. The Knights Templar had become a very wealthy order. Uh, you, If you haven't seen Kingdom of Heaven, it's a very well-produced Ridley Scott movie. I find it a little annoying that, of course, the, the Christians are really the bad guys and the Muslims are just coming, coming and doing their thing and taking back what was theirs. They had had Jerusalem for a while, but not that long. It belonged to other people before that. Always interesting. You could also read the the book, The Crusades, through Arab eyes. Or is it through Muslim eyes? I'm actually forgetting right now the title. But it gives you the perspective of the Muslim world on the Crusades. And it just so happens to start with these guys showing up out of nowhere and taking these cities. And it was all, everything was, it was all good till these Crusaders showed up. They skip the whole part of constant warfare between various Turkish princes in what is now what was the Anatolian Peninsula. Uh, they skip the seizure of major cities from the Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire, the, the inheritors of the Roman Empire and its legacy, uh, Byzantium or Constantinople as the capital city. They sort of skip over all that and the conquest of these areas that were Christian. They were Christian first, and then they became Muslim. How did that happen? Not just through, hey, this new religion sounds really cool, sign me up. But I digress. Uh, so 1307, but there's the Knights Templar in that. Uh, Knights of St. John or Knights, Knights, Knights uh, Hospitaller are in it as well. Um, so, yeah, check that out. In the Da Vinci Code, Dan Brown also looks at the 14th century execution of Jacques de Molay, who is a grand uh, who is a Templar grandmaster. 
That happened on Friday the 13th, and before he was executed, he cursed the Pope and the King of France, Philip IV. And so that was when the curse perhaps came down upon all of us. Telegraph and a bunch of other UK papers have, a, have good uh, rundowns of this. It is also possible, according to the, t- the Telegraph here, that the publication in 1907 of Thomas W. Lawson's popular novel Friday the 13th played a part in disseminating the superstition. Uh, an unscrupulous stockbroker takes advantage of superstition to create a Wall Street panic on Friday the 13th. That's just from a book. Uh, but 13 as a number, for those of you who believe in numbers as having, being in and of themselves meaningful, uh, 13 was considered unlucky even before the life of Jesus. 12 has been historically considered the number of completeness, according to the Telegraph here, 12 months of the year, 12 gods of Olympus, 12 hours on the clock. 13 is ooh, bad. Of course, in many buildings, they won't have a 13th floor. My building doesn't have a 13th floor. It just has uh, a roof instead of 13. Uh, a roof area, or not a roof, but a upper, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, Judas was the 13th guest to sit down at the Last Supper, as I said. Chaucer referred to Friday the 13th in the Canterbury Tales as unlucky. And there are some other reasons. And then people just start picking out the bad things that have happened on Friday the 13th as a reason for this. So I don't know how superstitious you are, but people don't buy as many homes on Friday the 13th as compared to other Fridays of the same month. People do not get married on Friday the 13th in the same numbers as they do on other Fridays of the month. It is... Definitely something that factors into our thinking. Superstition is a fascinating area of the mind. Because as I said, I know so many people, oh, I'm not superstitious about anything. If you push them, eventually people will get superstitious about something, I think, usually. And it depends on how serious the, the stakes are in any given situation. Right? So that's where you get people that say things like knock on wood or fingers crossed and all these things that we do that have become a part of the culture. These are all just superstitions. And if you look at them culturally around the world, superstitions have, lay a, 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 have had a big impact on the way people view and do any number of things. Because there is this part of the mind that tends towards mysticism and what is not able to be explained. And this also then factors into uh, tarot card reading and numerology and astrology and some would say different religions. Some would even say all religions. I'm not one of them, but people do say that. And there we have it. 888-900-3393. It's Friday the 13th, but it'll be a good day and a lucky day if I hear from some of you. We can also do action movie quote Friday. I do ask as we hone in on our action movie quotes that we try to get quotes that are uh, recogn- that are well known from the movie. That would be the only proviso that I'd put in here. So if you call me with a quote from Commando... That's a waiter asking, would you like a glass of water? I probably won't get that one, even if it comes from the movie Commando, which is clearly a fantastic action film. 888-900-3393. Team, we will be right back. Freestyle Friday is rocking. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. 
got Brian in Pennsylvania on the line. What's up, Brian? Brian? Hey, hey, Bob. Oh, second it? time. Oh, wait. Second, second. Hey, yeah. Bob, second time caller, long time listener. Uh, just Thank you. First off, I uh, wanted to commend you. Uh, I've been messing up scrambled eggs my whole life, and your advice the other day, low heat, more butter, made them perfect this morning. See? I, I I just I just come bearing good news, teen. That's what I do. And by the way, if you're if you ever feel like your hair is dry and too poofy, use less shampoo, less often. Hair tips, egg <laughs> tips, I got them all, baby. So action quote of the day. Yep. All of your ridiculous, pitiful antics aren't going to change a thing. You and me were puppets in the same sick game. We serve the same master, and he's a lunatic, and he's ungrateful. But there's nothing we can do about it. You and me, we're the same. Under siege, Steven Seagal to Tommy Lee Jones, right before the knife fight, which is the best knife fight I think ever captured on film, certainly to that point in time. Under siege being Steven Seagal's best piece of work by a mile, and a fantastic quote, sir. Fantastic. That's the. This is what. I'm, that's an action movie quote. There we go. And by the way, it doesn't have to be just one line. It can be a, a few lines, as Brian just gave us from Pennsylvania. Under Siege is a great, a great movie for what it is. I mean, it's Die Hard. It's Die Hard on a battleship, but I'll take it. All right. I think we lost. Is that it? Okay, good. Brian, Shields High, thank you for calling in. Uh, what was like? Oh, one more thing. This is going to conclude my, my Trump uh Spy war on Trump analysis for the hour here. David Ignatius, a very well-known Washington Post columnist, wrote about how, and this got a lot of attention on the Twitter last night. I think Twitter is just the way that journalists annoy other journalists late at night. This is what I've decided. If it wasn't for that, I'm not sure it would exist anymore. Because all the celebrities are now going to Snapchat to just take constant photos of themselves. And they can also give updates about their day. So tw- Twitter is now for journalists to try to one-up other journalists. And for people to give, ooh, the hottest of hot takes. Spicy, caliente hot takes. But uh, Washington Post guy Ignatius wrote that, quote, according to a senior U.S. government official, soon-to-be National Security Advisor Flynn, phoned Russian Ambassador Sergei Kizilyak. Sergei Kizilyak. It's fun to say. Several times on December 29th, the day the Obama administration announced the expulsion of 35 Russian officials as well as other measures in retaliation for the hacking. What did Flynn say and did it undercut the U.S. sanctions? He then writes, the Logan Act bars U.S. citizens from correspondence intending to influence a foreign government about disputes with the United States. Was its spirit violated? The Trump campaign didn't have a response. Well, actually, no, the Trump campaign does have a response. They added this in an update to the piece. A team member called Friday morning. The Trump official confirmed that Flynn had spoken with Kizilyak by phone, but said that the call was before sanctions were announced and didn't cover that topic. Spokesman said Flynn made an initial call, which was returned sometime between December 27th and early December 29th. In that call, Flynn and Kizilyak... Sorry, I'll stop doing that. It's kind of fun, though. Discuss plans for a Trump-Putin conversation sometime after the inauguration. I Let's talk about this for a second. How the heck did David Ignatius know that soon-to-be National Security Advisor Lieutenant General Michael Flynn called the Russian ambassador on that day? How would he know that? 
Someone explain this to me. Does, does Ignatius have moles in the Russian embassy? I mean, maybe, but if he does, wow. High five. Seems unlikely. Did, did Flynn leak this information? That's insane, so no. Why would he do that? The initial implication here was that Flynn, this is why he wrote about it, Flynn must have been trying to undermine Obama's actions against the Russians by the expulsion of those, dip, quote, diplomats, as we all know, quote, diplomats. Uh, but so that it was clearly meant to look bad for Flynn. So Flynn didn't let that information out there. It's a phone call. You have uh, Mark Zaid, who is uh, the most well-known guy in D.C. circles for dealing with issues of classification and defending people who write books when the government wants to pretend things are classified that aren't. He knows he knows that game backwards and forwards. He says, was this a leak of highly classified highly, highly classified intelligence? He posed the question. I just want to know. How did how did Ignatius know that Flynn called the Russian ambassador on 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 or around that day? I want someone to come up with a theory that doesn't involve a a leak that, if it were real, would be very classified from the intel community. Yet another one. It, it, I, may, maybe I might be missing something. Maybe there was, you know, Flynn's secretary loves the Washington Post, and she just happened to hear that he called her. But think that one through as well. What the heck is going on here, everybody? The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Thank you very much for joining. As always, our friend Emily Zanotti, political editor at Heat Street, is on the line. What's up, Emily? Happy Friday, even though it's Friday the thirteenth. Ooh, it. I like Friday the thirteenth. It's kind of creepy and good. Oh, look at you leaning into the superstition. Yeah. You're just like, bring I am it. leaning in. You probably like Ouija boards and black cats and stuff, too. I'm not a Ouija like, board they're... fan, but I do have a surprising number of home decor skulls. Wow. If you ever care to elaborate on that, let us know. <laughs> uh, so... Good talk. Uh, tell me about Heat Street's always got lots of fun and interesting stuff up on the site. HeatStreet.com, everybody, for those listening and who want to play the read-along game, too, as you're listening. Utah High School scraps dating class that told women to be feminine and ladylike. Ooh, what's going on? It did. So uh, Utah High School decided to make uh, purposes of dating part of their home at curriculum. So they have a class that teaches people how to, you know, balance a bank account and stuff like that. They decided it might be fun to teach them what they should do when they go out on dates. And they ended up kind of pushing the envelope. They told girls that they shouldn't go to the bathroom during a date because that was rude, that they should eat everything on their plate because the gentleman had paid for it, um, that they should be feminine and ladylike. 
And they also gave uh, guys some really interesting advice, too, like uh, make sure you bring flowers and candy to your date. Don't interrupt her when she's talking. It was, it was a very, uh, very interesting advice. And they ended up having to pull it because some of the parents complained. Well, some of that advice is crap. Let's get into this for a second, Emily. Obviously, yeah. don't be polite or rather don't interrupt and be polite. I mean, unless you're a radio host, then you have to be. Uh, a ruffian and a philistine who interrupts and yells over people all the time uh but other than that that's good advice but the bring chocolates and or bring candy and flowers on a date i think most ladies if you show up on a first date with flowers and candy it's it's a little much it's a little overdoing it it's it's like a couple steps behind showing up outside her window and playing uh your eyes as you hold up a (laughs) Boombox in a trench coat. A la John, John Cusack. Cusack, right there. Yeah, it is yep. a little pushy. You know, it's got a little bit of an edge. Yeah, I, I think so. It sounds like it was. I was originally about to say that telling women to be ladylike and uh, what was the other part of it to be feminine and ladylike to be feminine. Is, yeah, is is generally good advice. I would say. I think it's also good for a lot of. Young men to be told, just be a man. I think that's useful, Mm -hmm. as Ron Swanson laid out in his uh, handbook in Parks and Recreation for Swanson men, be a man. That was (laughs) it was a one page synopsis of all you had to do in the the handbook. Uh, And so that's an interesting thing that happened in Utah. Now, tell me about hipsters and L.L. Bean duck boots. I am not a hipster, but I do rock the duck boots. I also rock the duck boots. I quite like them. They're really great when you have to, you know, shovel the driveway or whatever in the wintertime. Um, but they came to be a trend in the last couple of years. They've replaced Ugg boots as the hip footwear for, I guess, college age and young women. And yesterday, these women found out that one of the L.L. Bean founders or the founder's granddaughter had donated to Donald Trump. And suddenly they were just just devastated that they had purchased these trendy boots from L.L. Bean and they've been wearing them for a whole year. And now they find out that they've been unconsciously supporting Donald Trump. And of course, that was just a horror, horror of horrors. I mean, are we really at the point now where we're going to give up if we're leftist, angry Democrats, some pretty badass boots because we hate Donald Trump so much? I feel like that says a lot. Once it's infringing on the left's fashion choices, then you know that they mean, well, they don't mean business. They mean to destroy business. Right. And, I mean, I put out on Twitter that if anyone had a spare pair of the, you know, size sixes that they could no longer emotionally handle wearing, that I would be happy to take them off their hands. Yeah, I, I saw this thing, you know, yesterday and, and people that say they'll never wear duck boots again. I'm just like, well, there are shortages sometimes. So at least we won't have to worry about that as much. Quack, quack. David Brock has some standard uh, footwear. Who, who, yeah, David Brock, next piece on HeatStreet.com, who people will say to me, they're like, Buck, you know, your, your hair is not quite at Brock level. And I take that as a compliment because <laughs> his, his hair is crazy. But he like is now. He. Yeah, <laughs> damn. He is <laughs> slamming or rather he had slammed Bernie Sanders, but is now trying to hop on. The Sandernista train? He's trying to be a Bernie bro? What's going on here? So he took to Medium.com, which is sort of like this website where you can go on and post open letters to people. He went on Medium.com and said that he regretted everything that he said about Bernie Sanders. And 
Well, some of the stuff he said was crazy. I mean, he said that Bernie Sanders didn't care about black people and that Bernie Sanders was just a communist. And he would go on and on and on. In fact, Bernie Sanders just called him a piece of human scum. Um, They had this fight going for the whole campaign. And now that I guess Hillary Clinton is no longer going to be in politics, he's decided that it's time to make peace and jump on the Bernie bandwagon. I think that he just realizes that he needs a new he needs a new act because his thing was that he was the Clinton lapdog extraordinaire. And that's not such a great place to be anymore. And he needs to position himself in a way that he's at the I I sound like I'm David Brock's strategist here. He was, by the way, a Republican at one point, too. So, I mean, this guy is jumping around. You know, he's a he is an absolute media mercenary. And now he's just looking for where the best angle is to be anti-Trump, never Trump. And I guess being a Bernie bro is where it's at. Yeah, in fact, I mean, he jumped ship very publicly back in the 90s. He led the way, uh, the led the opposition research campaign against the Clintons that ultimately led to the stuff that was in Bill Clinton's impeachment trial. And then publicly declared that he was completely blindsided by the right and that he has come to see the light and switched over to the Clinton side and was basically their conciliary for almost two decades. And now he's decided that he's, it, it's not an insult to Hillary Clinton, he says, but that there's a better way that he's seen. Trump's party planners say inauguration will have a soft sensuality. This also on Heat Street. Uh, what <laughs> does that mean? <laughs> we're not quite sure what that means, actually. Um, we're under the impression that it means it's going to be a more low-key kind of elegant event rather than the star-studded inaugurations that we saw during the Obama administration. But we're also a little afraid that it means Donald Trump is going to appear in his pajamas. I think it's, it's, it's scary wording. Let's put it that way. And yeah, I just soft sensuality. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye. There's some light. I mean, there's some candles on in the background and, (laughs) You know like or you put on you put on the, the music that you hear when you turn on the easy listening station on satellite or on whatever radio you listen to. I always wonder, like, where do they get this stuff? Like, who, who who's sitting around making the easy listening music? You know, the stuff that right. sort of that like who that jazz that you like. I think Kenny G would make a great version of this, you know? Yeah, I just sometimes think that there's a guy somewhere with a synthesizer who's just making all this stuff. You know, he's got like a. 80s beat 80s beat that he plays a little synthesizer anyway Mm -hmm. i digress uh madonna i don't even know why i'm talking about her but well we're gonna make fun of her so that makes sense she's always felt oppressed this also on heatstreet.com oh why why has is she almost a billionaire why does almost billionaire madonna feel oppressed well she's she's felt that all her life that people have not understood her and that she has taken these steps which she has admitted Uh, were to anger the uh, status quo and to get her further, you know, to to rile people up. But she says that all her life she's just been misunderstood and oppressed and under the thumb of the patriarchy. And she hasn't felt that she can be herself ever. So we should all be really crying into our uh, beer glasses tonight for Madonna. I also see that uh, Jessica Chastain has just tweeted out that birth control is no longer covered by health insurance. 
congrats, USA. You're doing your part to keep women out of the workforce. And then SMFH, which I feel like that's an acronym that has some profanity in it. I just realized that. Yeah, um, shaking my something head? I don't know what that acronym Yeah, happened. my foul head. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. She's very famous no. and has a big Twitter following. She played the redheaded analyst in that CIA movie, Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. Uh, but no one's going to care, right? She, this is This is disprovable by anybody who goes and tries to get birth control, but no one's going to care because she's a celebrity and they can say dumb things. Right. There's nobody who's going to be like, oh, you maybe you're wrong to her face. I'm sure that there's going to be a plenty of people on Twitter who are going to point out that, yes, it is still covered by your insurance and you can probably get inexpensive birth control at Walmart for $10 or less, but uh, you're a celebrity, so you're entitled to your own reality, I suppose. Yeah, just one of the few, yeah, I don't know. It seems like people just say the dumbest things and no one cares and famous people with huge followings and they just get away with it. I want to ask you about Chicago real quick before we let you go, Emily. Uh, The attorney general spoke out about Chicago policing earlier this morning. I'm going to get into the details of that after the break, but you Mm -hmm. live in Chicago, right? I do, For a a Chicagoan, the whole country is looking at what's going on on the south and the west sides and saying, "What, what is going on here? So I ask you, what is it like? I mean, are you, does it ever sort of spill over? Do people in Chicago who don't live in those neighborhoods pay much attention to it? Or what's it like to be a Chicagoan with a, with a city that had, I think it was, what was it, over 700 homicides last year? Over 700 homicides and more than 3,000 shootings. Um, and yeah, we are, we are looking at the south and west sides. We're actually looking at the mayor and saying, what the heck is going on right now? Because this isn't something that, has just suddenly popped up. It's been getting increasingly worse over the last few years. And Rahm Emanuel and the Chicago Police Department haven't been able to solve this problem. We've been through two police chiefs. We're now on our third police chief. Um, And part of the problem, at least that we've found out in the last couple of weeks, is that Black Lives Matter has been pressuring the police department to stop stop and frisk they've been cutting so the police department has been cutting down on patrols in those areas they've effectively let social justice warriors dictate how the police department runs its business because they're too afraid Uh, and so the attorney general came out with this report saying that the police department is doing all of these civil rights violations and how horrible they are but we're looking at the chicago police department and asking why aren't you doing more what what is happening right now have you been over into some of these areas? I'm just wondering how is it is it sort of I've been in very difficult neighborhoods before, especially in my time mm-hmm. in the NYPD. I mean, I was I spent some time in the there are very few places in New York City still where there is a pretty high rate of violent crime. But I've been in them for extended periods of time. And you can, you, you kind of know, you know, you're on the streets and you look around, you look at the buildings and you just can sort of yeah. sense that this is bad stuff going on. Is that what it's like or is it kind of out of nowhere in these areas of the south and west of Chicago? I've never been to Chicago, so I don't know anything about it. It's very secluded. So I probably would never end up in these neighborhoods just because I have no reason to be there. It's not anywhere that I would travel even as a tourist. It's on the far south sides, on the far west sides where we have gang violence that's out of control. Um, But they are places where you can recognize there's a problem. They are limited to very specific locations in the city where this is happening. Uh, And so the police department says that it's been focusing very 
exclusively on these bits and pieces around Chicago, but the results don't seem to play that out. Now, the last couple of summers, we have had it expand. When it gets warm outside, Chicago's a really nice place. Love to go to the beach, see, you know, see the restaurants on the lakeshore. And that's when people from the south and west side start to do fun things on the north side, and then they get into trouble, and there's shootings on the north side. So it does spread during the summertime, but for the most part, it's on the south and west sides and neighborhoods that are very secluded in and of themselves. Emily Zanotti is a political editor over at Heat Street. Follow her E.M. Zanotti on Twitter. Emily, happy Friday the 13th. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. And uh, team, phone lines open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. Rex Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, we've got Andy in Florida on the line. Andy, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. And I'm very excited about it because I'm usually a podcast listener, so it's great to be talking to you in real time. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Spread that Um, podcast far and wide. Build Team Buck Florida for me, Andy. I love Florida. I do everything I can along those lines. You're the man, dude. Thank you. uh, What's on your mind? The, the whole Friday the 13th thing, um, and I apologize if I miss this, but I learned something interesting when I was reading a book that was essentially a compilation of letters and journals and, and articles from the days of the Civil War. And um, it seems that back before the five-day work week um, was pretty much universal, that all Fridays were considered to be evil, generally. And um, the reason for that was is that it was the day that Christ was crucified. There was only one Good Friday, which was cleverly named Good Friday, because that actually represented the day that Christ was, in fact, crucified. Um, and um, so, so all Fridays were considered to be bad. So I've now I don't know exactly how that ties into Friday the 13th, except that now you have, on Friday the 13th, you have two superstitions uh, colliding directly, the, the um, you know, the general evilness of a Friday uh, coupled with the evilness of the number 13, so I think that's where the whole Friday the 13th came from. So, um, but... Uh, yeah, Friday's bad and 13 is bad, that's... That's kind of what I yeah. was getting at with the yeah, yeah. But it, but it was kind of a uh, you know everybody's now is you know thank God it's Friday because of the but that's only because of the five day work week. If, if Saturday, right. Friday's Friday, actually also Friday. every Friday is is good in a sense. <laughs> so that's the change. Yeah, well, I mean, but you're right. That's a new that's a new thing. And if you're a, if you're a Muslim or if you're a Jew, uh, you know, practicing clearly, there's also different there's differentiation between what day of the week is awesome for you and what day of the week is not as awesome or, or religious and significance and not as maybe awesome in the right. old school inspiring all way. Yeah. So, right? I mean, that was just, that was just the one thing, the one thing I was, uh, uh, 
you know, the, the, the one thing I had gathered from it. But it was, it was neat in reading the book that I got the perspective, which is why I love reading history books. And I'm sure you feel the same way because it does give you little bits of perspective. And, you know, most of the content in that particular book that I was written were written by people living at the time. So they wrote in the context of their culture at the time. And obviously there have been a lot of changes in even just the 150, 200, 175 years since the Civil War. So. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But that uh, is true. So and. And speaking of history, I know you get a lot of requests to do more history shows, and I love your history shows, and, and I'm one of them that would want you to do more. But, you know, if you're looking for um, – you might want to consider, you know, as kind of a um, uh, history light content, doing historical – some historical biographies on people, um, you know, that might not require yeah. as much production effort as going into the whole – Lepanto thing or whatever, um, but uh, you know I, I think understanding the the people in the context of their times is uh, is a very enlightening process. So interesting. I I, re- I used to read a lot of biographies, uh, Andy, but I have to say I've sort of fallen off, and and now I read more general history and even narrative history sometimes. But Andy Shields High down in Florida, uh, thank you very much for calling in. Great to talk to you. Uh, yeah, history shows. I'm, I, I got. I got that in the in the basket of things that I I'm gonna do. Um, so yeah, that's what Bucks got on the docket. Uh, we've got an interesting guest coming up. Who? It's a secret. You gotta stay with me to find the answer. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we were talking about mysticism before with Friday the 13th and superstition. Let's talk about magic. We're joined now by Murray Sawchuck. He's a celebrity magician who is currently headlining at Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. He was a semifinalist on NBC TV's America's Got Talent. We've got him on the line now. Murray, the magician. Great to have you, sir. How you doing? Good afternoon. How's life? I know. Rocking and rolling, sir. Same old, same old. So tell Wonderful. us first, how did you get into magic? Uh, how did you? Well, you got a background in this. How did you get into it? And what are your? What are some of your signature tricks? Well, uh, first of all, I want to do anything that I didn't have to go to school for ten years for because I think school is great. It's just not for me. So magic was it. I'm like perfect. I can just go out and work and make some money. So I'm, I'm very much an entrepreneur, you know. So in that sense, as a kid, you know, I got a magic kit like most people do. You know, at seven, eight years old, use it for 30 seconds, put it away like any kid does with a toy. And then I started kind of honing back into it because when I did tricks, people were actually being fooled. You know, it was just something that was kind of cool that I knew how it worked, but the person in front of me didn't, you know. And to me, it was so obvious how it worked, but it was really cool to fool the mind that way. So that's kind of how it happened. And, um, of course, went through school and did birthday parties as a kid growing up. And then you start creating your own ideas and own tricks and some of the ones I'm, I'm more known for now, uh, because America's Got Talent, a lot of TV shows I've done, um, is uh, banishing the um, uh, 1918 steam train uh, that was on America's Got Talent, which I think is still the biggest trick that they've ever had 
on the on the show, and it's live, you know, as as, as most people know, um, and it's in real time, which is not as easy to do with a lot of these tricks, uh, which a lot of magicians what? nowadays, you know, aren't doing. Well, you've had over 450 million online views of your tricks, by the way. That's quite a number. I have. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, over uh, the span through YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and all that, we've had over 450 million views. And that's only in the last 14, 15 months. And, uh, and that's only because about a year ago, um, uh, now is a good friend of mine, but reached out to me, a guy named Seth Leach, and he's like a viral video genius. He's like, you know, he could be my son. And uh, he's out of L.A., and that's what he does for a living. He's been doing this since he was like 12 years old, in his early 20s now. And he says, hey, you got great content, but no one's watching it. I thought, <laughs> that's always nice. So, um, so I said, well, let's figure this out. He said, well, let's work together. I can, I can get it seen by people, and if you just create, you know, keep creating the content that you need. And I said, great. I said, so we formed a partnership in the last 14, 15 months. We've been doing the YouTube videos, you know, once, twice, three times a week. So it's been really Really popular. We just finally hit our 100,000 uh, silver play button uh, last week uh, for subscribers. So that's kind of cool, you know, in 14 months. Well, so. Congratulations on, 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 Thanks, on the man. success of, of the tricks and the, and the projects that you've been working on. Uh, what can you tell us? The audience you're speaking to now uh, loves history. As a magician yeah. of note, have you looked into sort of the history of, of, of magic as a, as a profession? And, you know, what were some of the first sure. tricks that, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, some tricks, you know, I've been very fortunate for the last six years to be on Pawn Stars, you know, which is obviously a historical type show. So we see a lot of historical items come on, from Houdini stuff to Blackstone stuff and that. And I mean, magic's one of the oldest uh, art forms. You know, it dates way, way back. And, you know, some of the first tricks that were ever done, it dates back to Asia, you know, in China, you know, where a lot of it started. And one of the oldest tricks in the world is the Chinese linking rings, which are the big silver rings that appear to be solid, you know. And they link together and unlink, uh, which I think a lot of people have seen. And then also it goes back to an old trick called the cups and balls, which is like three little balls, three cups. And nowadays you see it done with three-card Monty or anything. If you're in the streets of San Francisco, it's a hustling game, you know, to make money. Or even in New York City, they do it in the streets there. So, so magic is really – it's evolved, and yet it hasn't. You know, the principles and methods are still pretty simple, you know, in the sense that there's only certain – places you can hide a train to make it appear you know what i mean some like certain places you can hide a ball you know and do sleight of hand you know people's hands haven't changed we still have five fingers and the palm so there's only so many things you can do with cards and coins uh but it's more so the ideas that are people doing now you know it's evolved over the old cups and balls that used to be wooden then they went into metal and copper and now people are using glass like clear glass cups you guys you see the balls through and they still vanish there's some really cool art forms that are that are being made so you can make the ball look like it's in the cup which it is uh because you can see through it but therefore when you lift the cup it's gone so it's kind of evolved in its own way from being one of the older tricks in the history of magic but then also magic's changed where now we use flat screen tvs you know what i mean uh, marco tempest who's out of new york city he's been known for years to use flat screen tvs so he'll put his hand behind it and on his, you know from from the audience you see his hand on the screen so it's just behind obviously the tv but he all has it all choreographed and then when he pulls stuff out of the TV, he really pulls it out of the TV in real time, like a ball, a goldfish, a pole. So it's kind of neat using the modern technology we have now with old forms of magic that's been around for 100 years. Are there any tricks that are actually dangerous and do magicians that aren't paying close enough attention you know, ever actually lose a hand? Or if they try to saw somebody in half, do things in, historically or otherwise ever go awry here? Or are they all pretty sure. safe? 
No, you know, there's certain tricks that are dangerous, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I did some stuff on Extreme Escapes, which is on the Reels channel, where I escaped out of a trunk that was, um, you know, exploding. The whole car was full of explosives, and I had to get out of a locked trunk and pick my locks and that. And obviously, I'm not going to blow myself up. There's always, you know, when you do stuff like this for TV, there's always a emergency button somewhere because, let's be honest, we just really don't want to die, you know, um, in this day and age at least. But back in the day, you know, people were burning themselves alive, but they weren't checking the weight of the dirt or how far down you have to bury, uh, you know, a plexiglass coffin and that. And you can find all this stuff on YouTube, but there's, it's true stories where, you know, people don't realize, oh, I'll just put dirt on top of the, the lid. And, okay, dry dirt uh, as you would know, weighs a lot less than wet dirt. So say it's a rainy day. Well, people forget to add the weight of water mixed in with dirt, and all of a sudden it changes everything, you know? And sure enough, the the little claps in. And if the lid claps in in a coffin, say you're underground trying to escape, there goes your oxygen, you know? And that's always a problem for humans, you know? <laughs> so, Who are the so biggest influences from the world of magic that you've had? And, and is there sort of a, a a Michael Jordan of magic, if you will? I think the Michael Jordan of magic is none other than David Copperfield. I mean, he's a legend. Um, he's got more money than God. You know, he's worked so hard for his. I think he's going to be the first billion-dollar magician. I mean, he works nonstop. The magic's great. You know, he's. Uh, I think he just turned 60, or he's just late 50s, early 60s, and and he's the one really driving it forward. He has the money, the time, and he has the people he can hire to really create some cool things. You know, and, uh, and of course, before that, it was Doug Henning. You know, in the 70s, he had a show on Broadway. Before that, it was Blackstone and then Thurston and Dante and Houdini, of course, you know. Even to this day, I think Houdini is still, you know, one of the top magicians in the world. He's been dead for years, you know, because of what he did and his legacy. And he's one of the greatest PR people in the world, you know, um, because he's the one that said he was the greatest escape artist. And everyone believed it. Is there anywhere where people were civilians who wanted to pick up some some tricks to pull off at the next uh, cocktail party or just... If they want to impress some people on the street or maybe a lady on a date, if I want to make a, sure. a dove appear from behind her ear, I don't know. Murray, you got to teach me some stuff. <laughs> you imagine, uh, right? Where, where, where exactly. do you suggest one go? Or are there schools for this kind of thing? How does this all happen? You know, there's schools and also there's YouTube channels. I mean, lately over the last year, we've been doing stuff now because people have been asking for it on my YouTube channel, you know, which is Magic Murray. It's really simple. And there's tricks we teach, you know, going to school, how to impress a girl, a bunch of different tricks that you can actually do at home. But, you know, other things you can do is you can Google on Amazon find books. One of my favorite books is Mark Wilson's Course in Magic. And it's one that you can read, like the old school days when you went to a library, didn't Google everything. And it has uh, the instructions and also each, uh, by each paragraph it has an illustration. You know, for me, I learn by seeing things. I'm, I'm a visual learner. I can't just learn by reading something, especially with magic, because you put it in your left hand, your right hand, it's like tying a tie without seeing a picture of it. So that's a great book. You know, and now online, there's so many different things you can Google and see and DVDs you can buy. But, you know, that's, that's one of the greatest places is, is basically going on YouTube, finding stuff, or getting a book. Like, like I said, Mark Wilson's Course in Magic is a very, very good book, and, and sold on Amazon and all those places. If people want to see some of your amazing tricks and just learn more about all the magical stuff you're up to, they go to murraymagic.com. Is that right? Yeah, murraymagic.com, or you can go to YouTube and check out my channel, which is Magic Murray, so it's YouTube backslash Magic Murray, and we're uploading stuff like every week, so tons of stuff out there. Well, all right. Murray Sawchuck, yeah. celebrity magician. Thank you so much for joining, and next time I'm out at Planet Hollywood, I'm going to come check out the show. You're always a guest, and thanks for having me on. Have, uh, have a great uh, weekend coming up. Fantastic. You too, sir. Thank you. Team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
Buck Sexton. Uh, you got the last days of the Obama administration and President Obama's doing all kinds of things that are not going to make the incoming administration's life any easier. The latest to add into things here is that they are ending the uh, so-called wet foot, dry foot policy, which says that Cuban migrants who reach the United States after one year become legal permanent residents. So the Obama administration is now saying, sorry, if you get here, if you're a, a Cuban migrant who makes it to the U.S. shore, you don't, necess- you don't have a, a special uh, privilege anymore. There's no special policy. You know, here's what, they, uh, what the White House announced. Effective immediately, Cuban nationals who, who attempt to enter the United States illegally and do not qualify for humanitarian relief will be subject to removal consistent with U.S. law and enforcement priorities. So they're saying that Cubans that get here now can be deported. Isn't it interesting that Obama deportations have been dropping like a rock in water in recent years? Deportations are way down for the last year of his presidency, perhaps something we should talk about in detail some other time. But the administration is saying by taking this, quote, by taking this step, we are treating Cuban migrants the same way we treat migrants from other countries. The Cuban government has agreed to accept the return of Cuban nationals who have been ordered removed, just as it has been accepting the return of migrants interdict, uh, interdicted at sea. Um, uh, so this is to cement the changes that Obama's made in relationships between the two countries. It's one week before Obama leaves office is what he's doing. Uh, you're, you're seeing Obama for the person that he really is or for what he really believes in the latter stages, in the very I should say the very final stage of his presidency, uh, with the slap in the face to Israel at the United Nations, uh, with this uh, wet foot, dry foot policy change, uh, with a, a number of initiatives the president's rolling out. Plus, I'm sure there's regulatory changes and things that are being rushed through at the 11th hour. And we're going to see the Pardons. Oh, there's the possibility of a Chelsea Manning commutation. Originally, I was reading it was going to be a pardon. I thought there's no way they're going to do that. What was the whistleblowing exactly that the U.S. military isn't perfect and that diplomats around the world have to deal with some unsavory characters in some authoritarian, nasty places? That's not whistleblowing. That's just reckless exposure of U.S. government activity. To what end? It's treason. What, what, what Bradley, now Chelsea Manning, did, did not help the United States, did not add transparency in any meaningful way. It just, it, it, you know, radical transparency, take it to its logical end. Should, should people see everything the CIA is doing? Should all the CIA sources around the world talking to us in authoritarian countries be exposed? Some of them are very bad people. Some of them are doing very, very bad things. Should that be is that transparency? The the left is fascinating with the way it applies this rhetoric about being a whistleblower and and the really the creation of heroes out of people who are betraying their country. And now Manning has even said, yeah, I, I it showed poor judgment, and so now it's oh well, he wants. At one point, they're going for the, the whole he's a hero line, and that didn't stick. So now they're going for the, They still try that with Snowden, by the way. And people get mad at me, even some conservatives. 
say, don't you want to know about domestic spying? Okay, he could have taken a document or two and made the case about domestic spying. From what we have been told and from what we know based on all the reporting on this, including Snowden's own words and also the words of Russian officials, he took a vast trove of top-secret material with him. What was that all about? If not to buy off the Russians to give him safe harbor. That is being a defector. Defector. That is that is treason. They try to say Snowden's a hero too. But you'll see now you've got uh, Pompeo who wants to change who would be uh, the would be CIA director, soon to be CIA director, who believes in uh, metadata surveillance. So we haven't even it's not even like this was exposed and the American people have revolted and, and are shuddering in horror over this issue. But I digress. Back to the, the, the cube. Well, I'll get the cube. I, I want to stay on the Manning Snowden thing for a second here because I'll finish that off first. Uh, this is really interesting to see that the Obama that Obama would even be considering a commutation of Manning sentence. I, if he wants to take it from 35 years to 20 years or something, if he thinks 35 is is too much, I, I mean, okay, it's, I guess, I don't know, that's just the president trying to show a little leniency that wasn't showed by the courts. When people start to conflate, though, those who get a two- or three-year sentence or even a one-year sentence for leaking something with those who, with the 35 years, first of all, Manning fought it, claimed to be a hero, didn't take a deal, and released a huge amount of information, huge amount of information, knowingly and willfully that was classified betrayed his country you know this is like yeah if you steal a hundred dollars i i think maybe we can say don't do it again go forth and sin no more if you steal a hundred million dollars you're probably going to go to prison for a long time this is not a new this is not a new concept it's not a new idea but the left still likes to pretend that Manning is some kind of a hero. I think in part because of the whole gender reassignment thing that he's got going on, too. That makes him now a, a victim somehow. He victimized the United States. He victimized all of us, actually. Third hour coming up. Stay with me. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Looking for a website with news and information that you can trust? A website that has you in mind? At TheBlaze.com, you'll find just that. TheBlaze.com is filled with the news and the information you care about. You'll find articles about faith, business, technology, entertainment, and a whole lot more. You deserve high-quality, reliable information, so there's no reason to settle for anything less. Check out TheBlaze.com and bookmark it today. TheBlaze.com. Want the inside track on everything happening in the world of Glenn Beck? Sign up for Glenn's free newsletter and get today's top stories emailed to you every day. You'll get show recaps from radio, video highlights from the Blaze TV, and unique insight on the stories that matter most to Glenn. You'll also get breaking news alerts and much more. Visit glennbeck.com newsletter and sign up today. Get informed and stay informed with the Glenn Beck newsletter. Visit glennbeck.com newsletter. Stupid internet stuff. Huh. Click here for free. Oh, I got a virus. Smart internet stuff. <laughs> Wrong. Wrong. 
Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to our three here in the Freedom Hut. We are joined by our own Dr. Lee. She's an assistant professor of nutrition sciences at Baylor University. Before coming to Baylor, Dr. Lee received her master's degree in exercise and sports from the Texas Women's University. She went on to obtain a Ph.D. in molecular carcinogenesis at University of Texas and MD Anderson Cancer Center. She has an MS, a Ph.D., and an MPH. What's up with that, everybody? Loving it. Dr. Lee, thanks for calling in. Thanks for having me on, Buck. All right. You're going to tell me a bit about bacteria as a means of fighting HIV. This is fascinating. I don't really understand it, but you do. So explain, please, Dr. Lee. Sure. This is one of my favorite topics, as I think you know. Um, Just to make clear for the audience, I am not a microbiologist. I am a cancer biologist. So um, I just want to put that one caveat out there. And some of the stuff that I'm going to be talking about today is maybe a little bit PG-13, so just remember that for the audience. Um, so with HIV, when I, when I first heard about this, it was probably back in 2013 or 2014 when I was at the National Cancer Institute doing my postdoc. And uh, there was a, a woman in the audience from a startup tech company, and um, she was talking about a new device to deliver anti-HIV drugs. And what she talked about was taking bacteria that normally live in a woman's vagina, uh, lactobacillus, which is normally there. It's very protective, keeps the pH correct. And what they were able to do is take a gene and insert it into the bacteria's own DNA. So now this gene called cyanovirin is actually inactivating HIV by binding to it and preventing the viral particles from attaching to the mucosa in the vagina. So what it does is it prevents the transmission of HIV. So they've only tested this so far in non-human primates, but now they're moving into phase one trials in females. And what's so exciting about this to me especially is the ability to help those women in Africa because that's where HIV is so prominent. And along certain corridors um, in African countries, you have um, stops and there is a prevalence of high HIV transmission. And the ability to provide doses of a cream that a female could apply um, to keep her from having HIV transmission would be an amazing new drug for these people because I think it would be fairly cheap and easy to administer because it would be the woman who would be administering it herself. And the other really great thing about this formulation is not only does it um, have this uh, gene that it expresses to prevent HIV transmission, it also is expressing other proteins that help repair um, the mucosa and prevent transmission by itself. So this could be a a fantastic new uh, weapon in the arsenal against the spread of HIV. In the article that I saw that you you shared with me, they talked a bit about probiotics, good bacteria, 2.0. Are there applications for I've also seen the uh, report from Vice News on using a virus to fight HIV. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, too. But it seems now that there's a whole new field of microbiology that is used 
to sort of fight microbiology? Is that and this is this is opening up and people are seeing there's this entirely new world of fighting disease with it. Yeah, absolutely. This has been around for, you know, probably over 100 years now. We've, we've all also known that we can use viruses or bacteria to fight other viruses or other bacteria because uh, bacteria secrete their own um, antimicrobial proteins to fight off other viruses or other microbes. One of the brand new um, devices that we use now in molecular biology to shut down genes um, is called CRISPR. So CRISPR is a way that bacteria normally fight off um, foreign entities from killing them. And so we've been able to use this new technique in our own um, uh, molecular biology, our own labs, to shut off genes, and it has potential for therapeutics as well. And so what they're now doing, for example, with poliovirus, they're now using an attenuated poliovirus that they can deliver directly into solid tumors. Mainly it's for glioblastoma, so brain cancer. And what this does is it causes an immune reaction in the body, and it makes their, uh, your own immune cells target those tumors and destroy the tumor. So we're using this in all sorts of ways to kill viruses and to kill bacteria. Just as a, as a general question, you mentioned that using bacteria in this way uh, as a as a protective mechanism for women or a, a way of reducing uh, the risk of, of HIV transmission dur- during intercourse, um, that that's going through the, the phase, what is it, it's entering phase one and the, the clinical trial process, what, it's phase one, two, and three. Correct. Uh, is, is that, is there a way to, should that be reformed? I mean, if, if I had... President Trump's ear, and I could get him and the the uh, head of HHS to sit down for a second, and the FDA maybe. Uh, is is this process too slow? Is it because we're too litigious as a society? It feels like there are these exciting scientific discoveries, but it just takes forever for new therapies to get to market. Or is that just my perception as an outsider? I mean, what what's the truth? No, no, the truth is it definitely needs to be reformed. I'm not an expert in the details of how it should be reformed, but yeah, you're right. It is is too slow, but they're starting to ramp up new ways of getting these drugs to people faster that are in desperate need, specifically late-stage cancer patients. So they're doing what they now call accelerated um, uh, trials for drugs. So if they find something like this polio, attenuated polio virus for glioblastoma, they accelerate that now, and it can be um, accelerated into patients that actually need it without being on clinical trial. So they are actually doing some more um, uh, new new ways to accelerate these drugs into the clinic without having to go through all three phases. But yeah, they're definitely they're working on that very hard right now to. Um, change the way clinical trials are um, are done in the future. Do you think that we'll reach a point in the next ten years when, at least in the in the developed world, and then that will clearly have an effect, uh, sort of a, a downstream effect for the for the developing world, where HIV is is largely at least the spread of it is eradicated, or do you think that there'll be a cure first, or what 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 will be the first? What would you either assess or guess? I don't know how far out I'm asking you to to push here will be the, the, the big breakthrough when it comes to HIV and, and maybe even with cancer, too? Um, I think what, I, what I'm hoping for is that we'll prevent the transmission. So we'll prevent the spread, and I don't think it'll ever be eradicated, but I think um, somewhere similar to uh, polio, smallpox, and um, some of those diseases like that um, will actually 
we'll get it down to such a minimal number that it won't be an important problem anymore because we have either a vaccine or, or something that prevents the transmission of it. And let me ask you, uh, I know your, your laboratory does research on the relationship between diet, obesity, and the microbiome. Mm-hmm. What can you, we're we're going to have uh, Gary Talbot, who's a journalist who does a lot of work on, uh, he wrote a book, What Makes what Really Makes You Fat, and he's also going to come on to talk to us about sugar in just a little bit here. We're doing a lot of health on today's show for whatever reason. It's like high school health class on the Buck Sexton Show. Um, but there is... Uh, the relationship between obesity and the microbiome, what, what can you just tell us about that? That just sounds like an interesting connection. Yeah, so I got really interested in this um, probably back in 2006 when um, uh, one of my um, all-time favorite scientists came out. Um, he was talking about taking um, uh, uh, the feces from a human that was obese and transferring it into um, a lean mouse. Um, that didn't have any of its own microbes, none of its own gut flora. And he was able to make this mouse obese. And I just thought that was such a fascinating idea and such a paradigm shift from what I had normally thought about. And so they've since then been doing a lot of studies looking at whether or not um, you can determine or classify somebody as obese just by looking at their microbiota. So there's been a lot of um, promotion uh, in, in studies about this and showing that, that you can, however, it's not as cut and dry as we had hoped to be. Um, it's not as strong of a predictor of obesity. The microbiota isn't. But there's a lot of really interesting things that we're still looking at. For example, in my lab, we're looking at um, whether or not somebody's um, gut bacteria, their microbes, are actually um, different in people who are obese. And if, if that's their, one of the reasons that's increasing your risk for colon cancer, because we know that um, depending on what type of microbes you have or if you have biofilm formation from these microbes living in your gut, it can increase your risk for colon cancer. So we're looking to, to answer that question whether these microbes in people who are obese are secreting factors that are mutating cells and increasing the risk for different types of cancer, so specifically colon cancer. All right. Interesting stuff. Uh, Dr. Lee Greathouse is an assistant professor of nutrition science at Baylor University. She is at KL Greathouse on Twitter. She is Team Buck Squad. Dr. Lee, great to have you. Thank you so much for calling in today. Thanks, Buck. Give the hubs a high five. Tell them I said hi. Will do. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, 888-900-3393, team. We'll be back right after the break. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. So, team, I mentioned that Loretta Lynch, uh, I asked Emily Zanotti about this before from Heat Street. Loretta Lynch spoke today, uh, gave a press conference, and part of that press conference was devoted to the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division's findings with regard to the Chicago police force. And keep in mind, we had Emily on talking about the South Side, West Side of Chicago, gang war zones, over 3,000 shootings. Okay, let's call it close to 10 shootings a day, maybe eight or nine a day. A lot of shootings, Uh, over 700 murders in the city of Chicago, which is about two million people, a quarter the size of 
New York City. New York City has 8 million people and had, I think, between two and 300 murders. So just to give you a sense of difference in the violence in two major U.S. cities, Chicago, 2 million people, 700 murders plus. New York City, 8 million people, four times the size and less than half the murders. So there we If Chicago were the size of New York City, Chicago would have had 3,000 murders, roughly. Uh, you know, it's 4X, call it 28, 2,800 and change. Almost 3,000 murders. That's a lot for one city. That's a lot of people being killed. And as we know, you read these horrific stories about, you know, a child shot sleeping in bed at night, a elderly person, a, or, you know, has been shot on their front porch or... Somebody else who's just walking to school, a young, a young person, teenager, paralyzed for life. I mean, these are the stories you're reading about Chicago. And you'd think it would be a an emergency and the federal government would say, how can we devote more police resources to this? What can we do to stop the violence? What can we do to be proactive? This administration's version of being proactive, given the war zone that Chicago currently is, the administration's version is to have the Justice Department, Loretta Lynch, and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department, which is hopelessly politicized at this point, as we know, to come out and tackle the problem from its root, in their opinion, the cops. That's the problem in Chicago, the cops. Here's Loretta Lynch today speaking on this issue. Play it. that the Chicago Police Department engages in a pattern or practice of use of excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Our investigation found that this pattern or practice is in no small part the result of severely deficient training procedures and accountability systems. Now, as my colleagues will explain in greater detail, CPT does not give its officers the training they need to do their jobs safely, effectively, and lawfully. It fails to properly collect and analyze data, including data on misconduct complaints and training deficiencies. And it does not adequately review use of force incidents to determine whether force was appropriate or lawful, or whether the use of force could have been avoided altogether. All of these issues are compounded by poor supervision and oversight, leading to low officer morale and an erosion in officer accountability. You know what leads to low officer morale? The Attorney General of the United States coming out and saying that there is a systemic problem of violence, lack of accountability, lack of training, and lack of procedures in a police department that is for one of the largest cities in the country. That, that I think, hurts morale. If you're, if you're a Chicago Police Department CPD officer, and you've got Loretta and you are working in one of these areas of Chicago because it's very segmented, right? There are only some parts of Chicago that have this violence going on. You hear that you're, you're out there taking real risks. You've got uh, gangbangers who are shooting at each other and hitting innocent people. And and you're out there trying to stop this. And Loretta Lynch is going to come in and lecture on lack of accountability and use of force. Uh, and I know that you're going to get 
social justice warriors posing as journalists at places like HuffPost and elsewhere. And yeah, the, there are, there are going to be some stories of cops doing bad things. Of course, those exist in every city. There are there are stories when when you get to a large enough number of individuals in any profession. There are troubling stories of misconduct, and and I understand police deal with life and death. So it's but look at the military case. There there are going to be some people in the military in any country anywhere in the world who go bad, are rogue. That will happen. People say, "Oh, Buck, well, are we not supposed to report on it? Not supposed to know about it?" No, it's not what I'm saying. I do think it's interesting that in the waning days of the Obama presidency, one of the last things Loretta Lynch is doing. Given all the murders, all the bloodshed in Chicago, is just put a just a big slap across the face of the Chicago Police Department, because that's what they need. Let's put a bunch of let's put a bunch of federal bureaucrats in charge of police procedure in Chicago. Let's have federal accountability to DOJ and the Civil Rights Division, because they know how to do street policing in Chicago. They know better than the beat cops. They're, they have a better sense of what's going on and what they're dealing with day in and day out. It's a question of degree and focus. Police brutality is bad. There's no pro-police brutality constituency in this country. It doesn't exist. It's a myth of the left that people don't care about police brutality. I've had negative interactions with cops. Everybody I know at some point or other has been harassed or annoyed with a police officer and maybe feel like there was some misconduct, there was some bias, there was some problem. Whether it was watching female members of my family get handled by the TSA and not being able to do a thing about it, we've all had our moments, right? We're aware of this, and we don't think this is cool or okay. But when you have over 700 people murdered and over 3,000 shootings in, in one city in the United States, a city that is the hometown, sort of adopted hometown of the outgoing president, you'd think that the emergency, you'd think the DOJ's focus would be how do we stop people from being killed in this city? But no, the focus is that police are not accountable enough. That's what the, That's the solution. Let's point a finger at cops. They're not the ones shooting all these people. Very, very few police-involved shootings in Chicago. But let's talk about the cops and their misconduct. This is so damaging and so destructive. What, what, what would I think if I lived in, in one of these parts of Chicago where these uh, shootings are constantly happening? And this is what they're... The police are already afraid to do their jobs now because of the Ferguson effect, which you talked about yesterday. You think, you think they're going to want to really roll up their sleeves and get into it now to serve and protect the streets of Chicago? No, they're just going to hope they don't get called a racist and brought up on federal civil rights charges. A disgrace. Loretta Lynch, absolute disgrace. It's just appalling. Uh, I know it's not really Friday fair, my friends, but I got a little fired up about that one for a second. We got a very interesting guests coming up. Don't go anywhere, team. Much more. Be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Gary Taubes. He is the co-founder and senior scientific advisor of the Nutrition Science Initiative. He's an award-winning science and health journalist. He's the author of Why We Get Fat and also a new book out that we're going to talk about now, The Case Against Sugar. Gary, thanks so much for calling in. Well, thanks for having me. Sugar, it's bad in some cases. Tell us why. Okay, well, um, the conventional thinking for like a century is sugar is just empty calories. You consume too much of it. You could, you know, you could balance it by exercise. You could burn it off. I'm making an argument in this book that sugar is a fundamental cause of a condition called insulin resistance, which means it causes obesity. It causes diabetes. It causes heart disease. It may even cause cancer and Alzheimer's. And I realize that sounds quackish, but the science is there to back it up. Can you walk us through some of that some of that science? I mean, I've I have to tell you from my own personal experience, I've always found if if I want to just drop weight without trying too hard, whether I'm working out a lot or not, getting getting rid of any excess sugar in the diet seems like a very effective thing in my own personal experience. But you're saying it's a lot more than just that. You brought up a, some very serious diseases there. You say sugar's directly tied to it. What's the science on that? Well, so there's there's two aspects. First of all, you know, we have these obesity and diabetes epidemics worldwide, and I mean, they're, they're in some cases almost unimaginable. Like in the U.S., diabetes uh, prevalence has increased 650% since the 1950s. I mean, if this was a, an infectious disease, if this was, you know, we would have investigative committees and, and think tanks and every other scientist in the world would be trying to figure out what was going on. Um, then these epidemics happen everywhere. So everywhere that a, a population transitions to eating sort of a Western diet, they, you see obesity and diabetes explode, and then you get these other diseases that associate with it, like heart disease. And it turns out that all these diseases are very intimately related to this condition called insulin resistance. So insulin is the hormone that we think of as being defective in diabetes as it is, but in in the common form of diabetes, type 2, it's your resistant to insulin. It means you have to secrete too much insulin to take care of rising blood sugar. And this insulin resistance problem seems to start in the liver. And as it turns out, sugar is uh, half a molecule of glucose and half a molecule of fructose, and we metabolize that fructose in the liver. And as far back as the 1960s, there were a lot of investigations saying, that, look, it looks like when you give animals and humans sugar, you begin to cause this insulin-resistant condition. So you've got an effect, if you would think of it as a criminal case, so the crime being committed are these epidemics of obesity and diabetes, and you've got sugar at the scene of the crime every time it happens. You've got sugar at the scene of the crime in the body every time it happens. And they, oh, that there's, there's not quite a smoking gun. So the way I say it, you know, is if I was a criminal, a prosecuting attorney, I could definitely get an indictment. I don't know if I could get a conviction, but you know, I wrote the book so that people understand sort of what the stakes are, what the case is, and they can make the decision for themselves what they want to do about it. Now, my, my CrossFit friends always talk about fructose versus uh, sugar or uh, what, sucrose? I mean, but the fructose yeah, as being well, not – I'm sorry, sucrose yeah. is – go ahead. Yeah, sucrose is sugar. 
So sucrose is half glucose. Glucose is the stuff, you know, when you can, when you eat a potato or bread, it breaks down into glucose. It goes into your bloodstream, and your blood sugar goes up, and your blood sugar is also, for all intents and purposes, glucose. But sugar, sucrose, is half fructose and half glucose. And that fructose is metabolized in the liver. It doesn't get into your bloodstream directly. And so, they, like, so, what you get from fruit is different than what you get from a jelly donut. Is what I'm this is what they always tell me, but I, I wanted you to kind of explain. Does well, that make dose, a big difference? Yeah. Toxicologists like to say the dose makes the poison. So there's a little bit of fructose, and anything that tastes even a little bit sweet, you know, any uh, vegetable or fruit has got fructose in it, but at relatively low doses. So then what we do is we take you know, plants that have it in at relatively high doses to begin with, sugar cane and beet sugar or corn, and you basically, you know, refine it down just like you can find cocaine in, in coca leaves at that, you know, uh, uh, the populations in the upper Andes chew for energy, but then you refine it down into a white powder and it's a very intense high. So that's in effect what we've done with sugar from sugar cane and beet sugar. So you end up with this white sugar and you end up with a, when you drink it, so you eat an apple, it you know, might be 10 or 20% fructose. and um, It might take you half an hour to eat the apple and digest it, but you could get five times as much sugar and fructose in a glass of apple juice or four times as much that you could drink in you know, 20 seconds if you wanted to. And that sort of dumps this stuff in your bloodstream and on your liver in a way that your circulation and your pancreas and your liver never evolved to handle. And so that's that's sort of the fundamental argument that we've turned it into a form that we could consume in such quantities and so quickly that our body can't handle it. And our body responds with this insulin resistance phenomenon. And once you're there, you're accumulating fat, you're becoming diabetic, you're getting, you know, all the disorders that go with heart disease. And it turns out that even uh, cancer and Alzheimer's uh, have the major roles played by insulin. And, and if you're becoming insulin resistant, you can argue, and I do, and I realize that I'm scaremongering on some level, but you could argue that uh, there's, that sugar is playing a, a significant dietary role in driving those diseases as well. How much of a role do genetics uh, play in, in this whole process of the development of insulin resistance, or does it seem pretty consistent that people reach a certain level, a certain consistency of sugar in the diet, and then they will have these problems? No, genetics clearly plays a large role um, in that clearly a lot of people, if, if it's the sugar, a lot of people clearly can tolerate it. So. I mean, you could think of it this way, is um, if you take a population that's never smoked cigarettes before and you convince them all to smoke cigarettes, like 90% of them are not going to get cancer. And there might be some genetic reason why they're protected from the carcinogens in the, in the tobacco smoke, but 10% are. And it's those 10% who you're going to say, you know, that cigarettes cause lung cancer in them. And you'd have the same idea basically with sugar. We have these uh, obesity and diabetes epidemics all around the world and in all kinds of different human genotypes, you know, Inuit and the Arctic and uh, the Maasai, like pastoral populations in Africa and South Pacific Islanders and Middle Easterners and Europeans. And, you know, you pick it. You had something having to do with the Western diet and some percentage of them end up becoming obese and diabetic. And those are the ones who are genetically vulnerable 
and the others are the ones who are genetically predisposed. If you have a family where everyone's tall and lean and lives to be 90, if I'm right, then they are genetically protected from, you know, they can tolerate the sugar because they have some genetic advantage that the rest of us don't. And so people that tend to, uh, people that, that uh, eat a lot of sugar, I mean, what's how, how large a role do you think sugar is? You're talking about the global obesity epidemic. You think this is the, the prime mover of that, right? That's what a lot of your research has led you to, or, or what, what yeah, is no, the prime I'm arguing mover? primarily diabetes. I think if sugar didn't exist, diabetes would be a, in the same way if cigarettes didn't exist, cancer would be a very rare disease, and it was before cigarettes. If sugar didn't exist, diabetes would well, be lung a very cancer. rare disease. Lung cancer, yes, thank you. Um, obesity, clearly there are other compounds that also cause obesity, liquid carbs like beer, for instance. I had a fellow write to me saying, you know, what's the deal with liquid carbs? And I said, well, I could write a book called The Case Against Beer, but I don't know if anyone would care. Um, so, <laughs> Some people might be mad at you just for writing it. What do you, the, the yeah. people listening to this right now, Gary, based on all the research you've done, uh, on this subject, both of, of what causes uh, what call, the real causes of obesity, the sort of biochemical causes of it, and then in your new book, which is out now, The Case Against Sugar, which everyone can go on Amazon and read about it and check it out, uh, what do you recommend people do? What, what are your recommendations? Well, clearly I think that if you really are concerned about a healthy diet, the first thing to do is to cut back on the sugar. Um, you know, whether you're going to get rid of it entirely is just a kind of judgment call that everyone's going to have to make. And I wrote the book so, you know, I could educate people to what the stakes are, what the argument is, and they could decide, is this something that I want to live without? You know, a reasonable argument can be made that sugar is addictive. I mean, if you have kids, you probably don't even have to read any scientific papers to decide. A lot of us find it easier to eat no sugar at all than to try and eat it in moderation or no added sugar at all. So, and I have to apologize, by the way, I'm making this call from the yeah, University of Pennsylvania Medical Center, and that's one of those helicopters bringing in a patient in the background. Oh, um, no, it's all right. I do the show from New York City, and we get emergency vehicles here all the time, so, uh, so yeah. we're, we're used to that. Uh, but so anyway, uh, I, Gary, where should everybody where should everybody go for the book? Amazon and bookstores, and also you have a website, Amazon, right? Bookstores, independent bookstores. I have a website, GaryTobbs dot com. Um, you know, I, I'm I. If people are concerned about the sugar in the diet, I think that it's, I, I wanted to 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 set the the sort of argument straight. Uh, I hope I did a good job doing it, and uh, I. I I think, uh, you know, people people would find it a good read. Gary Taubes, author of The Case Against Sugar. Great to have you, sir. Thanks for making the time for us. Okay, thank you. Team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. No, in Virginia, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Hey, Shields High. Shields High. Hey, hey, quote, uh, quote for you, movie quote. All right. Those glasses, you're, those glasses you're wearing make you stand out like a turd in a punch bowl. 
Oh, look, somebody put a turd in the punch bowl. I mean, it's a funny quote. What's it from? You got me. We got to get the buzzer back here. <laughs> uh, Mad Magazine, Up the Academy. Is that an action movie? No, no, it was a funny movie with Ralph Macchio. It was like his first movie. <laughs> what, what, what is it? Well, why are my why are my rules of the game so unclear, Noel? Action movie quote Friday. I, I love this. What, what, what is? Why are people calling in with not action movie quotes? I mean, we could do comedy quote Thursday, but if it's action movie quote, Noel, this is not nom. There are rules. <laughs> All right. All right, buddy. I'm just that's a big Lebowski a quote for those of you who don't know that. But anyway. All right, Noel, anything else on your mind before we head off for the weekend? Does Friday the 13th uh, scare you? Nah, it doesn't bother me a bit. All right, man, rock and roll. Thanks for calling in from Virginia. Shields high, buddy. Uh, I mean, action movies, I feel like I should sit here and just list. You know, just think of the think of the various uh, people that are in, the, the different actors that are in the Expendables movies, which I understand are terrible movies, but... Yeah, yeah. Although that those are action movie heroes, like that's what we're looking. We're looking for quotes from movies that those individuals have starred in, and, and some others too. Uh, and really, we're talking eighties and nineties here, folks, uh, or I guess some recent ones too. Uh, anyway, I watched some of uh, John Wick last night. I was I was with uh, Miss Molly, and John Wick was on, and I, that's one of those movies that I find it uh, watchable. But it makes it doesn't really make much sense, and it's sort of all ridiculous. But it's somehow also still very watchable, which I feel like Keanu Reeves excels in that area. Point Break also doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, it's completely preposterous, although it is so much better than the Point Break remake that I sort of watch because it's on HBO now or one of those on-demand channels now, uh, and it was just an unwatchable pile of garbage that didn't even seem to the, the remake the original point break is is bad in a good way uh it's a very I, I still think it's really fun to watch patrick swayze is very compelling as the as the bad guy uh and keanu reeves is sort of in his surfer 90s surfer prime um but yeah i was i found out that there's they're remaking the john wick or not remaking i'm sorry there's a sequel coming out for the john wick movie which i might i might go check it out just so i can pick up maybe more tidbits for my Russian accent because in the first one it's all Russian mafia guys that he's fighting and, and shooting uh, alright there's that uh, what was I going to say oh Monday by the way we do have a live show it's Martin Luther King Day uh, but we have a live show so uh, don't think that I am off and we will not be assembling in the Freedom Hut in fact I'm hoping all of you be able to join those of you who are listening even on podcast maybe you can join live if you have the day off and maybe you can call in it'd be kind of fun 888-900-3393, in case I haven't said that number enough today. I've said it a lot. It just sort of becomes habit, so yeah, that happens. And then next week we have uh, the inauguration to talk about coming up on Friday. Next week is going to be a big week. We are in the final days of the Obama administration. You know, you may have some stuff going on in your life. It's a little tough right now. You may have some challenges. There's some things that... We all have that we wish were different or that are bothering us. At least we no longer will have to sit through another Obama speech, which is just another condescending lecture from the left. That's going to be over with real soon. It's pretty exciting. The eight years of Obama, it has felt like an eternity. They are coming to an end. And we will have to see what happens with the Trump administration. 
I am hopeful, but I am on guard, my friends. That's the best way that I can put it right now. Uh, so let me know about your uh, thoughts on the show today. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. I'll be with you Monday and every day next week live from the Freedom Hut. Until then, my, uh, my colleagues, my comrades, my compatriots, fellow patriots, no matter what comes your way, have a fantastic weekend. And always, shields high. Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.